I'm going to talk to you about the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, so I guess you've, guess you've already heard a little bit about it. And maybe you've heard about it also because maybe it intersects with the kind of work that you do, or you may have seen it in the movies or on television. Or maybe you were already familiar with the statute because of this fellow, Edward Snowden, who I'm sure you know a couple years ago disclosed a lot of classified information and a lot of what he disclosed has to do with programs that are being conducted under the auspices of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. So this statute is the one that governs electronic surveillances and physical searches that are happening here in the United States, here in the homeland, having to do with national security law. So as Bob just told you, I used to be a lawyer in the office that now is called the Office of Intelligence, but it's the Department of Justice office that houses the attorneys that appear before the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Courts. So that means I was going to court all the time asking for warrants to let the FBI and the NSA conduct these searches and surveillances. And I'll tell you, if you ever get the chance to do this kind of work, maybe join that office at DOJ or uh, the equivalent offices at the FBI, NSA, I would tell you take the job because it is so interesting. It is this world where you, the lawyer, are intersecting with spies and FBI agents and CIA agents and you're getting to kind of see the inner workings of this world. It's really satisfying work because everything you do ends up making a difference. I mean, you can't talk about it, but you can read the newspapers and see, ah, that was my case and it, and it helped, it helped uh, you know, thwart a plot, something like that. And then the other part that I really liked about it was I'd come from the world of big law, you know, where litigation felt very adversarial to me, lots of opposing counsel that were very nasty and, you know, burying you in discovery requests. In this office, you didn't have to worry about that because everything was ex parte, so there wasn't any opposing counsel. Uh, so no, none of those discovery requests. So it's kind of the fun of getting to go stand up in court and speak without having to deal with uh, some of the stuff that isn't so pleasant about litigation. So it's a really interesting world. So what, what I thought I would do today is tell you about why the statute exists. Because if you understand the history of what, what they were trying to accomplish with this statute, it, gives you some perspective on, on where it's gone. And then I thought I would talk you through how the statute works. So what it is these lawyers are looking for, what it is the agents can get under this statute. And interestingly, a lot of the power of FISA isn't what you've been reading about in the papers having to do with Snowden. There's a lot of other stuff you can do with the statute. So I thought I'd talk you through some of that in case this helps you in your jobs. This may be something that you could use yourselves. And then I thought I would touch briefly on some of the things you may have read in the newspaper. Uh, and it, sh it showed up a bunch of times since September 11th, so I thought I would tell you about three different stories relating to FISA that you may have read about, uh, just to give you a little extra insight about what was, what was going on, so that the next time it shows up in the newspaper, you'll be able to talk to your colleagues about uh, what you think is, is really happening. All right, so where did FISA come from? So back before FISA, we uh, were in the world of the 1970s. So prior to FISA being enacted, what was happening was the executive branch, the president, the FBI, they were conducting uh, surveillances and searches without getting warrants at all. And the idea was that the president had the power to do that because of the Constitution, because under his executive authority, he's got the power to protect us against national security threats. And so the president's all through history were exercising this power and it was the FBI that was actually carrying this out. But then the 1970s roll around and you can remember what was happening back then. So this is the era of Watergate. So suddenly uh, the American people are very suspicious of government, very concerned about whether the executive branch has actually been abusing its authority and acting outside of the law. And so you've got you know, the hearings, the Watergate hearings, are we going to be impeaching the president and so forth. So around this same time, um, the Senate had started to hear about potential abuses under the name of national security that had been taking place by the FBI. And so they convened a committee, and it's called the Church Committee in 1975. It's called that because the senator who headed it was Senator Church. 
and they had a whole bunch of hearings. And this stuff is fascinating reading. If you would like a really interesting sort of insight into history, go read the reports of the church committee and you will just see stories that uh, they're like Hollywood. They're really interesting things about what was happening before the statute existed. So the church committee learned things like this. They learned that in 1961, President Kennedy was very concerned about this bill that was maybe going to be enacted that might be giving favorable quotas to the Dominican Republic. They might be getting uh, favorable quotas having to do with sugar. All right, so that's Dominican Republic. That's not America. It's foreign intelligence worried about this, this treaty. So that's all good. Then what they found out was that Bobby Kennedy, who, by the way, is a graduate of this law school, and was the attorney general under President Kennedy. He had authorized a bunch of wiretaps on Americans. So he had been bugging the offices of a congressman, a bunch of lobbyists, a bunch of congressional staffers to try to find out what's going on with this quota, but also because it's interesting, it's helpful to know the political outcomes of some of this wrangling. And so that's no good because that is spying on Americans without any sort of warrant. It's kind of expanding the definition of what foreign intelligence should include. Uh, so that was problematic. Uh, many presidents wiretapped the Nation of Islam, uh, the Ku Klux Klan, which is a purely domestic organization. Dr. Martin Luther King, they were bugging his phone, uh, you know, microphones in hotel rooms, that sort of thing. And then lots and lots of activity related to, the, to these guys, to protesters related to the Vietnam War. And so again, that is purely domestic, all protected by the First Amendment, uh, but under, under sort of the authority of national security, this is what was happening. So this, uh, this caused a lot of concern in the Senate. And it was also causing a lot of concern in the judiciary. So there was uh, a famous decision that's called the Keith decision that happened in 1972. The, for the formal name of it is United States versus United States Court for the Eastern District of Michigan. And that's a Supreme Court case. And the Supreme Court said the, that warrantless surveillance by the FBI of purely domestic activity, so it's, n it's not foreign intelligence, it's Americans, you can't do it. You gotta get a warrant. So it is unconstitutional, says the Supreme Court. Yes. I don't know if you have time to take a question on that case. I'm sorry, what? I don't know if you have time to take a question on that case, but in that in that case, it wasn't simply guys sitting around talking about the Vietnam War mm -hmm. and opposition to it. They bombed, they dynamited a CIA office in Ann Arbor, Michigan, so that this could have been uh, uh, treated as a criminal conspiracy case and not a First Amendment case at all. <coughs> unless a judiciary saw a weakened executive and wanted to carve out some power or mm -hmm. had other motivations. So this is all interesting stuff, and I think a lot of these cases you will find, I mean, I think the Kennedy administration back with the sugar lobby could make an argument that this is not about anything domestic, this is about national the point, in case you weren't able to hear this, is that with the Keith decision, was this purely domestic First Amendment? These are people planning to bomb. You know, so that'd probably be enough to get you a warrant under FISA, actually. But yes, I think you can argue both sides on a lot of these fact patterns. But the point of the statute is that you're going to have to argue both sides. You're not going to have the decision just left up to somebody that's not going to be accountable uh, to other folks who's just sort of making this decision uh, in private. All right, so uh, so that's that's the circumstance. That's that's what is going on in the minds of the church committee as they're kind of looking at this. And so what happens is Congress responds in 1978 by creating the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. So here is the purpose of FISA. It is the the statute that establishes a court that's going to oversee foreign intelligence surveillance and searches in the United States. So now you're not going to have this just left up to the FBI. You're going to have to go through a court, and there are going to be judges who are looking at this. And already, that feels a little bit better. You know, the FBI, that's purely executive, but now you've got Congress saying what needs to happen, so now you've got them involved, and then you've got the judiciary in the form of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court sort of looking at everything. So that's a bunch of different checks right there. The statute limits when the government is allowed to conduct searches and surveillances in the United States for foreign intelligence purposes. So that part of the statute uh, made the office where I worked 
really interesting and, and pretty inclusive, honestly. So you could have people of all different political viewpoints feeling pretty happy about this shared mission. Because if you had folks who really felt like, you know, I really want to get uh, as much information for the government as possible, the statute's helping them to do that. If you had others who worry about abuses by the government and overreach by the government, this is an office and this is a statute that's designed to serve as a check on what the government's allowed to do. You're gonna have to go through the statute first before you can do what you wanna do. And then the final thing the statute was trying to do was, and, and it's, conti it's continuing to do, is reducing the intrusion uh, on the privacy of US persons, so citizens and permanent resident aliens, during the collection of information against foreign entities. And so you can see that struggle still alive today as we're trying to figure out, You know, on the one hand, we're trying to protect the homeland against national security threats. On the other hand, we are worried about regular Americans who are exercising their First Amendment rights or living their lives or whatever. Um, we're worried about their privacy as well. And so you can see all through the history of the statute trying to figure out how do we balance those two sometimes opposing needs. All right, so that's the background. This raises a bunch of things that are really going to be beyond the scope of this talk just for purposes of time. Although I, think, I bet some of this will come up in the next session when, when Bob is debating some of this stuff, uh, which is I understand what is going to happen next. But some of the things you might think about if you're looking for, say, a you know, law review article to write. Uh, it, this issue of whether this statute is necessary at all because we have uh, the, the president's commander in chief and foreign affairs powers found in Article Two of the Constitution. And so some might take the position that the statute actually is too much of an infringement on those powers. That's something that's interesting. Another one that's interesting, there are all kinds of Fourth Amendment issues here. So you've read about some of them, but one of the basic ones that it took me a little while to kind of wrap my brain around when I started working with the statute is, so the Fourth Amendment protects Americans against unreasonable searches and seizures, and it requires that the government show probable cause before it can get a warrant. And so coming out of law school and you know, sort of traditional criminal law, I was thinking probable cause that you are gonna be committing a crime. Well, this statute's different. The probable cause here is you're gonna have to show probable cause that your target is a foreign power or an agent of a foreign power. And that's it. There are extra protections for Americans that we'll get into, but that's basically it. And so that means that you could be having, you could be doing searches and surveillances on people that are not committing crimes. They're just like the guy who's working at the Chinese embassy and he's not doing anything that's in violation of US law. And yet, under the plain language of the statute, that'd be enough to let you get a FISA warrant on this guy. Now you might run into also some issues with treaties and, and things like that, that could be something you would have to weigh as well. And that also is gonna be outside of the scope of this talk. But I thought that was really interesting when I first started working with this, that the probable cause requirement is there. The warrant requirement is there, but what you're looking for under FISA, it's different than what you're looking for under a criminal warrant. Okay, so let me tell you now a little bit about how this statute works, like what it actually feels like to get one of these FISA warrants. And to explain this to you, I thought I would use the story of that television show, Homeland. Has anybody here seen Homeland on TV? So a few people, if you haven't seen it, it's kind of fun to watch. It's related to national security law, so that will be, I think, of interest to you. Plus, it's just good. It's Claire Danes is the star. She's a fantastic actor. Doesn't matter if you haven't seen it, though. I can tell you enough of the fact pattern. The reason I'm picking it is because um, when it first started, I watched season one, and at that point, Edward Snowden hadn't come out, so people weren't really focused on FISA. And within like one or two episodes, they go and they get a FISA warrant. So I'm like jabbing my husband, saying, "That's a FISA warrant. That's that's what I used to get," because nobody had ever heard of such a thing. All right, so, so here's the setup for Homeland. So the star of Homeland, the, the main character is this woman named Carrie Matheson, and she's a CIA agent. And she is absolutely convinced that this guy named Nicholas Brody, who was a Marine and a prisoner of war, she's positive that he's actually a sleeper agent, that he was turned during the eight years that he was held prisoner, and he's working for Al-Qaeda. She's sure of it. And so the first, very first episode, you see her sneaking into his house and he, she's setting up video cameras and she's setting up microphones and she's got no warrant. So what do you think, can you, can you do that? 
no, 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 you can't do that, totally illegal. And so, of course, when her boss gets wind of this, he says, no, no, you can't do this, we need to get a warrant. And so he says, oh, Carrie Matheson, don't you worry. I know a federal judge and I'm gonna go to him and I'm just gonna get you a FISA warrant and then everything is going to be good. So, does that sound okay? And the answer again is no. So it's not okay for two reasons. So first, you can't just go to any old federal judge. You have to go to one of the judges who's on the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. They are all federal judges, but there are only a few of them. So you don't get to just pick any old judge. You gotta go to that proper court. And then the other thing that you gotta do is you gotta make sure that you've got the FBI or sometimes the NSA involved. And that is because Executive Order 12333, which you may have you may be familiar with, says the CIA is not supposed to be doing domestic spying. So what actually happens in real life, Carrie Matheson would need to go find herself an FBI agent who is willing to open up its own independent investigation on Nicholas Brody to try to figure out if Nicholas Brody's a terrorist. So that could happen because the CIA, NSA, FBI, they're allowed to share information with each other. And it would be fine for the FBI to use some of the knowledge that Carrie Matheson's got about this guy, uh, and, and that might trigger them to open up this investigation. So in real life, what my experience was, was that it was gonna be the FBI mostly knocking on my door and saying, uh, I want you to start this application. Yes, I see a hand up. Yeah, absolutely. We're gonna get into that. Lots of protections for US citizens. So that's, but you're thinking exactly the right way. So if you are a lawyer in this office, those are some of the things you want to be thinking about. So, okay, here comes the FBI, let's say, and they say, Nicholas Brody, we want a FISA warrant on this guy. And so you, the lawyer, are going to start asking questions. And the questions that you're asking are designed to make sure that the requirements of the statute are satisfied. So here are some of the basic ones. The first thing you're going to be asking about is, well, do we have probable cause to believe that Nicholas Brody is a foreign power or an agent of a foreign power? So foreign power means government, but it can also mean a terrorist organization. And it can also mean um, things that are wholly owned by a, a foreign government. So you could have, say, the National Bank of Canada, something like that, that, that would con be considered a foreign power. It can be a foreign-based political organization that is not substantially composed of US persons. So I tell you, if you work with the statute, the power of the statute is in the definitions. So you're trying to figure out what is a foreign power, go to the definition section and it will tell you all of the things that could possibly be a foreign power. And this probable cause part, it's about the totality of the circumstances. So that's what the judge is gonna look at. And I remember struggling with that when I first started thinking, what, is, what does that mean, probable cause to believe that this person is an agent of a foreign power? And the answer is, it means there's a fair probability that this person is an agent of a foreign power. So let's imagine that Nicholas Brody, uh, you know, what do we know about him at this point? He's a Marine, he was a prisoner of war, and let's say we know that he then visits a travel agency, and that is all we know. Is that enough to get you a FISA warrant? No, that's not enough. Now, if you knew though that this was a travel agency that only serves Al-Qaeda operatives or something, well, okay, then maybe, because that you'd be able to consider that, and that gives you more of a totality of the circumstances. Okay, so that's the probable cause part, but as, as uh, Stephanie's pointed out, it should be setting off some alarm bells in your head that this guy's an American. And that is because FISA gives you extra protections. Hey, I'm gonna ask you guys to hold your questions till the end because I don't have that much time and there's so much I wanna cover. So let me, let me have you just hold your questions in your head and then we'll, we'll try to tackle them at the end. Okay, so he's a US citizen and so you would want to make sure that he is knowingly violating or about to violate criminal law. So if you've got somebody who's not a US citizen, uh, maybe that person is, is working with an organization that's actually a terrorist front and this person is you know, a citizen of, I don't know, Iraq or something like that. 
you don't have to worry about the knowingly part. So the guy could be working with this organization that's actually a terrorist front and not even know that that's what they are, and you'd still be able to get the FISA warrant. But for Nicholas Brody, because he is a U.S. citizen, you're going to have to make sure that he knowingly is participating. So maybe he thinks he is supporting an organization that is just some you know really helpful, uh, aligned with him politically in some way, but actually they're funneling money to Abu Nazir, who's the bad guy, the, the Al-Qaeda guy. If he doesn't know about that connection, then you don't get him. Um, so the US person requirement, that is also defined in the statute, and that means if you are a citizen of the United States or you're a permanent resident alien, you're gonna be getting these extra protections. So this is where uh, sometimes maybe you get the FBI agent who comes to you and says, you know, this person has been giving money to this charitable organization. We want to get FISA warrants on every single person that is donating money to this charitable organization that we now know is actually, you know, sending funds to Hamas or something like that. Those U.S. persons on that list, if we don't have any reason to believe that they know that that's what's happening with this organization, you're going to have to go do more investigations. And by the way, as you're saying no to each of these things, as you're saying to the FBI, ah, it doesn't quite satisfy the statute, that doesn't mean that's the end of the story. That means go back and get some more information that will show that this person knows what this organization is up to. And so that's why there is a lot of back and forth. So they you know, go back to the field office and they do additional investigation that you can do outside of FISA. So maybe they get you know, a, a, a source inside the organization and that source is willing to say, yes, this guy knows exactly what we're up to. Okay, then that's gonna help you satisfy the knowingly requirement. All right, next thing that you are wanting to look at, no U.S. person can be found to be an agent of a foreign power based solely on his First Amendment activities. So that's a little bit of what Thomas was bringing up in the, in the Keith decision. Okay, so the way this comes up, you might have this person, so after September 11th, you know, there was a lot of this, people calling up concerned about, you know, my neighbor down the street, I'm worried about my neighbor down the street. He is a Muslim and he goes to a mosque and he hates America, he keeps talking about how angry he is at America. You need to do something. Can't get a FISA warrant, that's not good enough because belonging to a mosque, criticizing the government, all of those activities are protected by the First Amendment. So if this, this target, this potential target, is a U.S. person, you're going to have to get something more. It can't be based solely on First Amendment activities. Now, this person then says, I'm gonna go buy a plane ticket, I'm going to a training camp. That's gonna be something different. So that's a little bit of, of what was raised here about, you know, well, they're building bombs. Building a bomb, that's gonna be something, something else. That's more than just the First Amendment activity. So you, you need to be looking at that with Nicholas Brody as well. Okay, you also can get the person who knowingly aids, abets, or conspires. And so this is gonna let you get kind of the network around the potential target. So let's imagine back in Homeland, so Nicholas Brody, he's got this guy who was his buddy in the military, uh, I think his name was Tom Walker. And let's imagine that Nicholas Brody realizes Tom Walker, he's homeless now, everything's falling apart. And so Nicholas Brody's gonna let Tom Walker just sleep on his couch. He's gonna give him a place to stay. And it turns out Nick, Tom Walker is the terrorist. He's the one who's gonna be working for Al-Qaeda. If Nicholas Brody doesn't, doesn't know that that's what Tom Walker's up to, you're still not gonna be able to get your FISA warrant on Nicholas Brody. However, if you find out that he does know about what Tom Walker is doing, even if he doesn't approve of it, he knows Tom Walker is, is engaging in terrorist activity and he lets him sleep on his couch, then you can get a FISA warrant because by letting him sleep on his couch, that's helping this guy, that's helping this guy accomplish his terrorist acts because you're giving him a place to live. So again, you're looking at this sort of knowingly requirement. All right, the next thing that you're looking at is it's gotta be international. So this is really important too. We are trying to make sure that we're not getting the Ku Klux Klan. We're not getting this guy, Timothy McVeigh. If you are going after domestic terrorists, you should be using the criminal statutes. The Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act is all about foreign activity, foreign terrorist organizations. And so you're gonna need to show that some part of this activity occurs outside the United States or transcends national boundaries. 
I think this is uh, a little bit easier to do nowadays than it probably was back when the statute first existed. And that is because of the internet. Because if you could show that you've got a terrorist organization and that organization is getting advice online from some sort of international terrorist group or it's getting money online, that sort of thing, then you're going to be able to show that uh, it's transcending national boundaries. And so that might make this a little bit easier than I imagine this used to be before the internet existed. But that's the idea. You're trying to not get your domestic folks. They, for that, you've got to go through the criminal statutes. And you can also get uh, the lone wolf terrorist. So this was happening. This is a change that happened when I was in that office in the Department of Justice. So I remember thinking about this and, and you know, reading memos about this. So the idea was this. You got this guy, and you know he's a terrorist, and we're terrified of September 11th. This just happened. You know, I joined that office right after September 11th. And everybody's worried, like, who is going to be who is it, who's going to be the next Al Qaeda guy that we just didn't know about? And so you've got this guy, and you can't yet tie him to a specific terrorist organization, but he's not a U.S. person, so you've got the sort of international tie, and he's engaging in terrorism. So if he is not a U.S. person, they added this lone wolf provision in the statute, and so you can get him through that. Now, I was just reading in the New York Times this week, so this, this was uh, tied into what has just recently been amended by Congress this past week. And according to the New York Times, this rarely gets used. Like, there, there have been very few, if any, instances of the lone wolf terrorists that have actually been targeted under FISA. But this exists, so this is another part of the statute. Okay, so that's all about the person. But now you're also going to have to make some showings about what it is you are targeting. So electronic surveillance, electronic surveillance is going to be like tapping somebody's phone or it's going to be uh, email, collecting people's email. So this is where you're getting content right now, what we're talking about. So we're actually, in this part of the statute, listening to telephone calls or reading uh, email messages. You're going to have to show probable cause to believe that the facility, which means the phone number or the email address, is actually being used by the target or is about to be used by the target. So in our homeland situation, you could imagine Nicholas Brody's got this daughter named Dana. She's got a boyfriend. So let's imagine Nicholas Brody actually borrows Dana's cell phone sometimes to um, go enact his terrorist plot. So it's Dana's phone, but we can show that Nicholas Brody uses it. Then you could get a FISA warrant on that phone. Uh, but that's going to be a problem because it's also going to pick up the telephone conversations between Dana and her boyfriend, both of whom are just U.S. persons, U.S. citizens, and has nothing to do with terrorism. So we'll talk about that in a second. All right, so if it's somebody else's phone, you could get it if you can show that he's using it. If it is a phone line that hasn't yet been turned on, um, but it's going to be turned on tomorrow, the statute says used or about to be used, so that means including in the future. So if you can show this is for him tomorrow, you could get that phone line. Um, a search. So a search means like going into Nicholas Brody's house and looking around. A search also means, by the way, looking at old emails. So I always thought that was kind of funny. You know, if you're trying to get, you're trying to read this target's emails, the stuff that already exists and is sitting in, a, in an archive, for that you're going to have to ask for a search because you're looking back. And then for the, the emails that are coming in now and coming in in the future, for that you need a surveillance. So you've got to make sure you're asking for both things if that's what you're looking for. Um, and so for a search, you're going to have to show probable cause to believe that the thing you're trying to search, like the house or whatever, uh, is owned, used, possessed, or in transit to or from the target. So it's pretty easy if it's like the guy's house. Um, but it also means that you could get something that is coming to him, a package that's flying in on an airplane that is going to be delivered to him, or a piece of mail that's being sent to him. It also means you could search, say, the neighbor's garage. If it turns out Nicholas Brody is storing stuff in his neighbor's garage, and you could show that he's doing that, even though that garage doesn't belong to Nicholas Brody, you could use the FISA warrant to search the neighbor's garage. Okay, and then finally, you're going to have to show that what you are looking for, what you're uh, targeting is foreign intelligence information. And so that is defined as information that relates to, and if concerning a U.S. person is necessary to, the ability of the U.S. to protect against actions taken by foreign powers or agents of foreign powers. So this definition becomes kind of important. 
Um, so the idea is you can use FISA to protect against uh, national to protect the national security against foreign threats. So that's that whole agents actions taken by foreign powers or agents of foreign powers. You're not supposed to be using it for domestic political activity or ordinary criminal conduct. That's not what you're getting in this statute. Um, and then this necessary to thing, that's another extra protection that the US person gets. So necessary, uh, you gotta figure out what that means. So there is a House report from 1978, the House report that accompanied FISA, and they said necessary to means that the information is important and required, not simply useful and convenient. So you can remember that because we're going to talk about that phone metadata collection at the end of this talk. So it's required, it's not just useful and convenient. So you're going to have to show all of those things. Okay, so let's imagine we've gone back and forth and the FBI has showed you all that stuff. They've been able to satisfy all of those things. So you, the DOJ lawyer, you're now going to write this application for the warrant and it's going to go through so many layers of review. So it's already gone through a ton of layers of review by you, the lawyer because you have gone through your checklist and you're making sure you can satisfy all of these things. And you're careful about it because I tell you, your reputation is really important. You know, if you went in there and applied for a FISA warrant and you were shading the truth in some way, you were exaggerating your facts, um, you were pretending things are there that aren't there, those judges would remember you. You would lose your job. It would certainly wreck your reputation within the office, but the judges themselves would also remember that. So that already is a pretty vigorous layer of review. But then it also goes through all these other layers of review. So the, the folks at FBI headquarters um, look at it so that usually this is originating in the field. So you've got like an FBI field agent, but then there's an FBI headquarters agent who's going to be the guy who's physically going to show up to court with the DOJ lawyer and actually testify to things. So he's been reviewing stuff. Um, the lawyer in DOJ has folks above him or her that are reviewing these applications and asking questions. There are FBI lawyers in the National Security Law Branch who read over all of this and they ask questions. Then it gets sent back to the field office. So this whole thing is a routinized kind of thing. So the field office then has to read it again and approve it. And then there are these law clerks that work for the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. And my goodness, they can make your lives miserable because they will ask many, many questions. And so you're, the nobody's even, no judge has even seen this yet, but the law clerk is going to say, I need answers to 15 more questions. So you're going to answer those. And then it gets signed by some really big deal people. So you've got to get it personally signed by the deputy director of the FBI. And I'll tell you what, in my day, it was the director of the FBI. They changed that part of the statute. So you had to get the director of the FBI back then, and then the attorney general of the United States. So another big part of the job was knowing the schedule of these people so that you could get the applications to them and they would actually physically sign them. So that was really complicated. And they've got their people reading it too, telling them whether to sign it or not. And then once all of these things are signed, it is then read by the judge on the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court and the judge approves it or denies it. Okay, so here's something I wanna say about that. Sometimes you will read these statistics and they will tell you the approval rate by this court is so high, 99% of these applications are approved. And so therefore, people will conclude this court is simply a rubber stamp. They're just doing exactly what the government wants them to do. And I am here to tell you that is not the case. The reason that 99% of these things are approved is because of this. Because by the time you actually take that application to this court, it is perfect. You have answered every question. And if you cannot answer every question, you are not taking it to court. So here's my old boss talking about this. James Baker was the counsel for intelligence policy when I was at DOJ. He was on Frontline and here's what he said. I just want to say that the idea that the FISA court is a rubber stamp is to my mind ridiculous. And I think the American people need to know that. I think folks really don't understand the process. They don't understand the give and take. We have an interactive process with the FISA court. So if they have questions, they don't understand something about the application, they have a concern, they'll ask us about it. We'll say, we don't know, judge. We'll go back, we'll find out. We'll go back to an FBI field office, let's say, and we'll ask them. They'll say, well, actually, we do have some additional information, so we'll file a supplemental document, submit that to the court, and then the court might be satisfied, and then the matter is resolved. The application is approved. So could the court, when it first got the application, have denied it or issued some kind of order? I guess they could have 
in that kind of scenario, but that's not how the process works. The process is more interactive than that. So that was that I found that to be true in the time that I was there. Um, and I'll tell you, I'm extremely liberal and worried about abuses of government power and so forth. This stuff did not concern me, the idea that the court was some sort of rubber stamp because there was such care taken with all of these applications. Okay, so what are the main things that you can get under this statute? So the main stuff that you can get, which doesn't get written about very much, the, the thing that's really powerful, is you can get the right to do electronic surveillance and physical searches. And so those would be the things where you're actually reading the emails, where you're actually listening to the phone calls. But as you can see, you're only getting those for agents of foreign powers or foreign powers themselves. So you are not reading every email of every American. You are not listening to every phone call of every American. That's not happening. You can also get uh, pen register trap and trace. So that's phone logs. And then you can also get business records, um, which we will talk about in a second. OK, so those are the things that you might be able to get under the statute. So another important part of the statute that you'd want to pay attention to that I think doesn't get written about enough is minimization. So you will overcollect. I mean, it's just, so Nicholas Brody, he's talking on his daughter's cell phone. That means you are going to pick up those telephone calls between Dana Brody and her American boyfriend. And they've got nothing to do with this investigation. But you can't know. When the statute was first written, it seems to have kind of imagined an FBI agent sitting there listening to all of this live in real time and then sort of turning the recording off as you realize it's just Dana and her boyfriend again. But that's not how it happens in real life now because it's all automated. You know, you're, you're just picking the stuff up. And then what you're doing is you're going through this after the fact and listening to the recordings after they already exist. And so that's where minimization comes in. Same with emails, by the way. So let's say you've gotten the FISA warrant to pick up Nicholas Brody's emails that are coming in. You know, I could email him. I don't know, he's a FISA target. I'm emailing him about something totally innocuous. And so my email to Nicholas Brody has been captured. I'm an American citizen, and I don't have anything to do with this terrorist plot. So how is that going to be handled? So the, the, the answer is minimization. So minimization is designed to deal with this irrelevant information that you have collected. And the minimization part of the statute says the government's going to have to adopt procedures to restrict the acquisition, retention, and dissemination of private information concerning US persons. So if we overcollect and we get conversations with people who are not American citizens, we're not worried about that. We're keeping that stuff. But if we get your conversations and you are an American citizen, then we are going to care about minimizing it. So um, what the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court it has said in a, an opinion that has been declassified is that the government can retain information unless the information absolutely could not be foreign intelligence. Okay, so that could be problematic because that could mean that you are keeping, say, the telephone call between Dana and her boyfriend because you're not totally sure yet that she's not in league with her dad. Or maybe you're keeping it because eh, it's got some scheduling stuff in there. And that actually could be foreign intelligence information because that could help you know where Nicholas Brody's going to be. That could be very, very useful for an intelligence information, even though she herself is not part of this plot. Or sometimes you're keeping it for longer than you wish you could because it's happening in a foreign language, and so they got to get people to translate it. Um, so that part could be unsettling. It's possible that you're collecting stuff and keeping it for longer than I think the original enactors of the statute thought that you would. But that was really because they were imagining that we'd be able to kind of go through this stuff in real time and make that decision right away. And the reality is uh, we can't go through it in real time. We often are having to translate it. Sometimes it's just not clear yet. And so the government is going to hang on to it until it's absolutely sure that this stuff could not be foreign intelligence information. All right, so FISA can also show up at a criminal prosecution. So what happens, you've seen some of this. So you've got you know, the folks who were uh, plotting with Al-Qaeda, and now we are prosecuting them. And so there were FISA warrants on them, and you want to use some of that information to prosecute them now. And so can you do that? The answer is yes. You can use this information in a criminal uh, prosecution, and you can even use it in a criminal investigation. But 
a significant purpose of what you've been doing really needs to be about foreign intelligence information. So you're not supposed to be using FISA as an end run around the criminal laws. But you can imagine what would happen. Like, so you are the criminal defendant's lawyer now. You're not in DOJ anymore. You're a defense lawyer. And your guy's being prosecuted for being part of al-Qaeda. And there was this FISA warrant. So you'd want to look at the warrant, right? You want to make sure that it was on the up and up. Because if it wasn't, then they're not going to be able to use what they collected through that FISA warrant. But that's going to be really difficult. Because what's going to happen is you're going to file a motion to suppress. And then that motion is reviewed by the district court judge, and he's going to look at it in camera and ex parte, which means it's this, the, the application, it's still classified. It's still secret. So he might ask you and your client for information in order to understand what he's looking at, but he's very unlikely to actually show you the FISA warrant itself and the application that supported it. And that is because that stuff shows you all kinds of things. It's going to show, it would show the criminal defendant who our embedded sources, you know, what these great new technologies are that we have that aren't yet known, and, and we don't want that. So that's the, that's the balance that the statute has struck. All right, challenging a FISA warrant, pretty tricky. So uh, first of all, you, you think that you maybe were target of FISA, you're never really going to know because these warrants are all ex parte. You're not going to be um, summoned to protect yourself against this FISA warrant. Uh, Clapper versus Amnesty International is a Supreme Court case that came down recently that makes for really good reading. So that was a bunch of lawyers and folks that are definitely communicating with terrorists. They are just really positive uh, that their stuff is collected. So very likely they were targets. And the Supreme Court said, you have a standing issue because you cannot show that you were actually targeted. Therefore, you cannot bring this case. So that's going to be pretty tricky. Uh, the telecommunications provider, provider has the opportunity to challenge a FISA directive. So that's possible. But they're obviously not having the same interests as the, the actual target of the FISA warrant has. Only the government is actually allowed to appeal rulings by the, the FISA court. So there is this appellate court that you can appeal to. It is rarely convened. It is uh, just a few judges, another uh, court of appeals judge, and sometimes a federal district court judge, a couple out, few of them. They, in the few times that they have been convened, they have invited amicus briefs. Uh, so maybe you could be heard that way. But, but the real answer is, if you think you're a target of a FISA warrant, uh, it's, it's going to be really difficult for you to challenge that. All right, so I want to tell you three times that FISA has showed up in the news that you may have heard of that you might be interested in learning about. So the first is back when September 11th happened. So after September 11th, there was uh, just a lot of kind of hand-wringing, like, well, how did this happen? How did we miss that this attack was going to go down? And so you may have seen articles like this one. So this is an article about the intelligence wall. And what they were writing about was this. So prior to September 11th, there was literally a wall. The, the Department of Justice was trying to separate the criminal world from the national intelligence world because they were worried. You know, think about why was FISA created? It's because there had been abuses, and they wanted to make sure that FISA wasn't used as an unrun around the criminal laws. And so they weren't really letting those worlds talk to each other because they found that when national security lawyers were sort of directing what the FBI agents were doing who were, have, had this criminal investigation, that was seen as too much interaction and it was an improper use of the statute. That was how it was interpreted. So that was a problem. So you may have read about that wall. And so what Congress did was they changed the statute. So the statute used to say that the primary purpose of what you're doing is, uh, has to be foreign intelligence gathering if you're using FISA. They changed that language. And so now it says a significant purpose has to be about foreign intelligence information. A significant purpose means you could also be doing this ultimately to prosecute as well. And so that's a pretty good change because that is what then lets you know, the FBI, CIA, NSA communicate a little bit more. Uh, that was pretty rocky when I was there, because it was just new. You know, people weren't used to coordinating with each other. And so that made the job really interesting, figuring out how to kind of get everybody to feel like they trusted each other and we're all on the same page and we're all kind of working towards the same goal. But that's one of the, the moments in the news. OK, here's another one. So this came out uh, right, right as I was leaving DOJ. So I actually remember 
uh, the FBI come in to talk to me to find out, was I one of the people who had leaked this? Because they interviewed all of us, all of us who had been in this office. So this was uh, uh, an investigation, or this, this was a, a whistleblowing activity, not by Edward Snowden. There was a fellow named Tom Tam, who was a lawyer in my office, a friend of mine. He had an office down the hall from me. And he went to the New York Times. Apparently, he first tried to go up the food chain, and people were just telling him, not talking to you. So he went to the New York Times and he said, I think that the NSA is collecting information not using FISA. I think they're going around FISA. And so the New York Times wrote about this and what they found and what has now been confirmed is that soon after the September 11th tax, President Bush authorized the NSA to intercept the contents of international communications, so phone calls and emails from within the United States outside of the FISA process. So this is, you might have heard this called stellar wind. Um, and so the idea was they're collecting this information, they're doing it in the US because it's easier. You know, we can now get phone calls and emails and stuff because we control so much of the services that people are using when they're making phone calls or sending emails. And so he was doing this outside of FISA. So this is, uh, this ended up being really helpful. Apparently it was very, Productive. So the report is that the program grew exponentially after the CIA began capturing top Al-Qaeda operatives, and then they just continued to collect this stuff, and this is how we were bringing people down. So you could imagine, I'm, I, I, I would imagine it must have been exciting to find that this is actually helping out. But it's a problem because FISA talks about this, and FISA says you can do war, you can have a wartime domestic electronic surveillance without a warrant, for 15 days, and that's it. So after the 15 days were up, this was not permitted. The statute has, has explicitly governed this area, and the statute says you cannot do this. So my take on this is that what Tom Tan was disclosing was illegal, illegal activity. And that's not just my opinion, that apparently was also the opinion of some folks who were inside the operations at the time who actually knew this was happening. So there's this great story about the attorney general, who at that time was John Ashcroft. He'd fallen ill and he was in the hospital. So this is like March of 2004. And so Jim Comey was then the deputy attorney general. He's the director of the FBI. So at that point he, now, but then he was the deputy attorney general. And so, because he's stepping in for Ashcroft, he's read into this program. And he says, what? This does not seem legal. And so the program needed to be renewed and he wouldn't do it. He said, I'm not gonna do it. And so there's this scene where these people go running to Ashcroft's hotel room. So apparently it was Andrew Card, who's the White House Chief of Staff, and Alberto Gonzalez, who at that time was the White House Counsel, later became the Attorney General. And they're saying to, uh, to John Ashcroft, you gotta sign this, you gotta renew it. We need the Attorney General's signature. And the report is that John Ashcroft raised himself up from his hospital bed and pointed to Jim Comey and said, there is the Attorney General, and Jim Comey uh, refused to sign. Apparently then the president just went around that and it got reauthorized. But so Tom Tam, not the only one who had some concerns about this. All right, so once this became very awkward, once this was public, what happened? The answer is Congress amended FISA again to make this legal. So what Congress did, so at this point all that had been disclosed was that foreign communications collection. So Congress amended the statute and they added Section 702. So you may have read about Section 702 collection. So Section 702 permits the Director of National Intelligence and the Attorney General to jointly authorize electronic surveillance for one-year periods. So you don't have to go back to court very often. And it's targeted at a foreigner who is abroad. So under Section 702, you're not allowed to intentionally collect uh, U.S. persons' communications. You're not allowed to target anybody who's located in the U.S. So as soon as you know this actually is a U.S. citizen or this is somebody who's in the U.S., you're supposed to stop what you're doing, but you're getting somebody who is abroad, and the purpose has to be to acquire foreign intelligence information. So this is important, too. This is a little bit different than the rest of the statute. There is no requirement that the government demonstrate probable cause to believe that an individual targeted is an agent of a foreign power. 
all you're looking at is that this person is overseas. And if this person is overseas, you can collect this information. So this is different than the traditional FISA collection that I already explained to you. So this kind of comes from history because prior to all of this, prior to FISA, we apparently were collecting a lot of this stuff, like international cables and everything. And it was all happening overseas. And FISA was carefully constructed to not touch that collection. FISA absolutely says we're looking at domestic collection. We do not care about what is happening overseas. But then what happened is technology changed. And so now suddenly, this collection that maybe we used to do abroad or we would get through the fiber octave cables, you know, going through the ocean or something, now we can do it here in America, and that's so much easier. And, but if you've got an American telecommunications provider, you're going to have to give them something. You're going to have to give them a warrant or they're not going to do it for you. And so this Section 702 uh, is, is letting that happen. So remember Section 702 because now we are going to get to the story of Edward Snowden. All right, so May 2013, uh, ironically, a week after I last I talked about this for, for Bob's uh, uh, conference back in 2013, Edward Snowden discloses that there's all this stuff going on. And that, that last time I talked about it, Bob, I remember saying, you know, it's weird, these changes, because it looks like they're talking about sort of um, programmatic surveillance. It looks like they're sweeping up a lot of stuff. And that, that I wonder if that's really happening. And then, boom, Edward Snowden releases this stuff. And it turns out, oh, yeah, that's kind of what was happening. All right, so here's what happened. Edward Snowden, he's an NSA contractor. Um, and he released thousands of classified documents about the US's intelligence activities causes a huge amount of damage, uh, in my opinion, absolutely illegal what he did. But he discloses this stuff. And so among the information that's disclosed by Snowden were two NSA bulk surveillance programs that were operating under FISA. So one is the Section 702 collection, the collection of communications of foreigners abroad. And then the other is the stuff you've probably been reading about this week, this telephone metadata collection, which is happening under Section 215 of the Patriot Act. All right, so in response to Snowden, Congress enacted the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board. So this is another really interesting source if you are interested in this area of the law. So this is a bipartisan agency. It's housed within the executive branch, but it's got people on it like judges and so forth. And they are, they are meant to be looking at what the intelligence community is doing. And so they're reviewing the actions of the executive branch uh, that, that has been taken to protect the nation from terrorism. And they're supposed to be balancing that need for protection with the need for privacy and civil liberties. And so this this board began reviewing um, these different programs, and they have released two unclassified reports about the programs that Edward Snowden talked about. And so they make for really good reading. Um, they give you some more insight about what it is that's happening. Uh, and I think that they are better a better source of information than just picking up your newspaper, because I think the stuff that ends up in the newspaper often uh, is, is really missing some of the nuances or, or is just plain wrong. So I'd be looking at those reports instead if I were you. Okay, so let's talk about that Section 702 collection. So under Section 702, the government collects the contents of electronic communications and telephone calls where the target is reasonably believed to be a non-US person located abroad. And then here's how it actually works. So what happens is you've got this person, and that person is a target. So you've got an actual human being. But then you've got to have a, also a facility. So you've got to have an actual email address or a telephone number. Um, so that facility is also called a selector. So you can see it described that way as well. And then that facility is tasked. And what that means is that the way the NSA is collecting that information is through that task sele selectors. Uh, so they're searching for like any communication to or from this particular email address or to or from this particular uh, telephone number. So when it is just email and they're doing it through the electronic communication service provider, that's the PRISM program that you may have read about, uh, that's pretty straightforward because you're just definitely getting the stuff that is going to or from that email address. And, and that's fine under the statute. The, another part that maybe is a little more problematic is upstream collection. So upstream collection is where you are getting your information through what they call the internet backbone. So you're not actually getting it from Yahoo or Gmail or whoever. You're getting it through the, the internet backbone itself. 
And so apparently the way, and this is beyond my technical capabilities, I will tell you, but apparently the way that this data is transmitted through the internet is it goes through these packets and it goes in the most convenient route and then it gets reassembled at the other end. And so it's really difficult to say just the emails to or from this address and same with the phone calls. And so what you end up with is sort of an over collection. You end up collecting emails and phone numbers to, from, or about that telephone number or email address. So if I write to you and I say, oh, you know, Nick Brody's email address is blah, 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 and I'm writing to you, uh, and I'm not a terrorist, and you're not a terrorist, but I'm talking about the email address of a terrorist, it's going to get collected. So that ends up being a little more problematic. Um, the, the oversight board talks about this and says, well, you know, that's, it, there's some question about whether we should be letting the government then keep the stuff that gets over collected whether we should be letting them use it. My personal opinion is I don't think we should. I think that stuff should be taken out of the equation, but that's not what's happened. So the government is able to use that over collection. Um, and, but as a practical matter, look, this is a lot of stuff. And the NSA is collecting it automatically, and they're probably not looking at most of it. They're only looking at the stuff that ends up being really important. So that can give you some comfort that maybe you're talking about Nicholas Brody, but your stuff's probably just not going to be in there very much, looked at by an actual human being. OK. So the, the oversight board said, well, a little bit of a tricky thing, but OK. We think this is OK. And we don't see any reason to believe that this is being abused. All right, the other provision that gets talked about by Edward Snowden and which just got amended this week is Section 215 of the USA Patriot Act. All right, so this is where, uh, this is, this is a, a section that lets you collect business records. So this one also has kind of an interesting history. So the business records statute um, was added. First, the idea was you're gonna be able to get business records from telephone companies, this was in 1998, and you can get business records from a car rental facility, you get business records from a storage facility, um, and the way the statute existed back then, you'd have to show that the target uh, was a foreign power, an agent of a foreign power, and these records pertain to him. And the answer was that in that format, this was not very useful. This was a statute that, that section of the statute that was not used. Between 1998 and 2001, the government only obtained one FISA order for a business record, and the original incarnation of the statute. So in 2001, after September 11th, the uh, statute was amended. And the government was now allowed to acquire any tangible things, so not just business records, but other things like books and things like that. Um, and then that led to another conversation. So I remember the big conversation that was happening when I was in this office was, this means you're gonna be able to get my records of all the library books I've checked out. And that's a big invasion of privacy. And I'm here to tell you, I don't think anybody ever asked for people's library book records, because that's just not all that useful. But that was a worry. It was now no longer just common carriers. It was sort of records about anything. All right, 2006 USA Patriot Reauthorization Act, suddenly there is significant amendment. So under this amendment, the government didn't need to show that the records pertain to terrorists or other agents of foreign powers. Instead, it only needed to show that the records were relevant to a foreign intelligence investigation. So here's this language again. It's relevant to a foreign intelligence investigation. So notice that in the statute, there are other places where they talk about it's necessary to a foreign intelligence investigation, and that's a higher showing. Relevant, it's going to be something less than necessary. So if necessary is important and required, not just useful and convenient, relevant is going to be something less than that, something less than important and required. Maybe it is just useful and convenient. So this is how the government has been collecting that telephone metadata. And apparently what they've been doing is hoovering up everybody's telephone metadata, not just the telephone records related to terrorists. And the reason that you'd want to do this is because, let's say you find out that Nicholas Brody is a terrorist. You want to know everybody that he's been talking to. And if we can be collecting those records now, and we find out in two years that he's a terrorist, we could go back to that archive and, collect, and, and see who he talked to in the past two years. And that's extremely useful. OK, so that was what they're trying to do. 
Um, and I'll skip over what they're doing, but essentially they could search it twice. They can search for Nicholas Brody, and then they could search for all the con uh, contacts of Nicholas Brody. This is a big problem. So the Second Circuit just recently said that they thought this was illegal, mostly because they thought it was a misreading of the statute. So they're concerned about this relevant to a foreign intelligence investigation. And they said, you know, if everything is relevant to a foreign intelligence investigation, like every single phone call in all of the United States, you're kind of reading out relevant to a foreign intelligence investigation. That's like saying the whole world is relevant to a foreign intelligence investigation. And so suddenly, the language in that statute is meaningless. So that was, that was the Second Circuit's logic. And the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board also believed that it was illegal. So they had the same concern about the misreading of the statute. And then there's also a, a, a constitutional concern. And that one's less clear, because there is a Supreme Court case from the 70s that says you don't have a privacy interest in your telephone uh, phone records. Uh, so maybe you don't have to get a warrant to see this stuff. But I'm not sure whether that case would continue to be good law today, because we can do so much more now with our advanced technology. So this week, Congress changed the system. So Congress now says the NSA is not going to be the one to hold this data. It's going to be held by the telephone companies or, or what have you. And the government is going to have to apply uh, each time it wants to do a search. And so there are problems with that. And I think Bob is going to be telling you about that when, when you do the debate later. Uh, but you can see what they're trying to do. It's the same push and pull that we've had from the very beginning with this statute. You know, on the one hand, we do not want to be defenseless. We want to figure out how to protect the homeland. On the other hand, we don't want to give up the privacy and the civil liberties that are so foundational to our culture and to our country. And so that's, I think, the story behind FISA every single time you see it showing up in the news. And I see from my timer that my time is up. So I thank you very much for listening to me. And I'd be glad to take a couple of questions, but then I think you need to move on to your next thing.